0: This week on Talk Nation Radio, we'll talk about how the coronavirus crisis is impacting or failing to impact militarism and sanctions. Sarah Lazar is web editor at In These Times. She comes from a background in independent journalism for publications including The Nation, Tom Dispatch, Yes! Magazine, and Al Jazeera America. A former staff writer for Alternet and Common Dreams, Sarah co-edited the book, about face military resistors turn against war sarah got her start in journalism reporting for the independent media center movement and has organized against u.s. militarism at home and abroad sarah lazar welcome to talk nation radio
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for coming on. Thanks for all the writing you're doing. Uh, One article you put out recently at In These Times uh, had the headline, As the World Economy Grinds to a Halt, the U.S. War Machine Churns On. Uh, How so? How is it churning on?
1: So at a time that a lot of people are in free fall with no safety net to catch them, we are seeing that the military-industrial complex is being kept afloat. It's being tossed a life raft while the rest of us drown. There are a few different ways this is happening. Um, One of those is that the Navy publicly committed to accelerating contract awards, a move aimed at improving cash flow for uh, quote-unquote defense contractors. So, you know, weapons manufacturers like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. Another way that the U.S. military is subsidizing um, and financially supporting the weapons manufacturing industry is that the Department of Defense announced a, quote, deviation on progress payments. According to their own memo, this decrees that once in contract, progress payment rates that contracts can get paid for will increase from 80% of the cost to 90% for large businesses. And 90% to 95% for small businesses. Um, So this is another measure aimed at protecting cash flow. Um, Another, oh, and one more thing to say about that. Sure. That that development was widely celebrated by some of the most horrific weapons manufacturers of our time, like Lockheed Martin put out a glowing uh, tweet on Twitter, it's just, over the moon about this development. Another thing and, we're And
0: are these Are these uh, decisions that the Pentagon can make on its own just because it has more money than it knows what the heck to do with? Or does Congress have to be involved in anything you've mentioned thus far? <laughs>
1: um, that's a good question. The the memos and directives I saw were announced by the military. I did not see any sign that Congress. Uh was the final decision-maker in those uh, directives and in those announcements.
0: Yeah, so what was it doing with all that money before it decided to shell it out is is another question, I guess.
1: (laughs) Right, right, absolutely. And, you know, one other really big thing we're seeing that I'm sure people are a little more aware of, it's gotten a bit more attention, is that the Department of Defense declared the, quote, defense industrial base to be essential work during the COVID crisis. Um, So, that means that, you know, people who work in factories or manufacturing plants, um, building tankers, building bombs, um, they're actually being asked to keep showing up to work while much of the country is in -in shelter-in-place orders. Um, So... Uh, the union leaders of local F6 chapter of the Industrial Union of Marine and Shipbuilding Workers of America, I know that's a big mouthful, um, they represent Bath Ironworks' workforce. Um, Bath Ironworks um, uh, is run by General Dynamics, and they said in an open letter, it seems as though the company is willing to use its workforce as sacrificial land. Um, I actually spoke to a non-union worker who works for a company that contracts with Lockheed Martin. um, He requested that he remain anonymous, but he said that there was one confirmed COVID-19 case in his job site, yet he was still instructed to show up to work Um, every day. He said that he was very worried that social distancing there really isn't possible. This is a quote from him. There are no divides between desks or anything there are three or four feet between people. Um, So, and his job is actually providing development and testing software uh, used on Navy ships. So that, those kinds of workers are who is deemed essential workers. Um, So,
0: yeah. So again, Sarah, I have the same question. Who gets to decide who's an essential worker? It's obviously not the workers. It's not their unions. It's not the Congress or the public. Uh, The the Pentagon can simply decide that weapons makers, workers are essential workers.
1: Yeah, so um, it's funny because in practice, well, it's not funny. It's, It's very dark that in practice the Pentagon is making these decisions. But there are actually, um, you know, the CEOs of Northrop, Grumman, Raytown and others are actually angry that there has not been a federal mandate passed saying that defense workers are essential workers. So um, this sounds ridiculous to us, but CEOs are demanding even more. Um, but you did ask about what Congress is or isn't doing And one thing that has really flown under the radar is that in the $2 trillion um, CARES stimulus package, um, there was, so it included a $17 billion federal loan program for businesses deemed, quote, critical to maintaining national security. Um, And the Washington Post reported that the provision does not mention Boeing by name but was crafted largely for the company's benefit, and that was according to two sources. Um,
0: Boeing, which was doing just fine and didn't need any bailout at all, right?
1: Right, right. And then, you know, here we have, you know, 16 million people have applied for unemployment in the past three weeks. Um, The, you know, 27 million, or 27.5 million were already uninsured, uh, there's, I saw one study that estimated there will be another 7.3 million uninsured by summer. Um, people are scared and hurting on a mass level. And there is so much need for a tremendous social mobilization to catch all the people who are falling. And that is not happening. And instead, we are seeing the world's most violent institution getting bailed out. And this is the same military that is actually worsening the coronavirus crisis abroad. Um, you know, since the crisis began, um, the us body coalition has continued dropping bombs on Yemen. Um, the U.S. cut aid to Yemen. Um, Yemen now has a confirmed case of coronavirus. The country's healthcare system has been decimated by a five-year bombing campaign. Um, if we want to talk about providing relief for people who are hit hardest by the pandemic, we need to talk about getting the U.S. military's boot off of the neck of people all over the world. Not talk about further resourcing it. There are a lot of other examples of how sort of you know U.S. militarism and imperialism, which are all strengthened by. The military-industrial complex, which is getting a bailout, um, is worsening the crisis. You know, the U.S. tightened sanctions on Iran, one of the countries hardest hit by coronavirus, in the middle of the crisis, even though doctors were begging, Iranian doctors were begging the U.S. to lift the sanctions, and they were saying that deaths are increasing because of sanctions. Um, You know, the U.S. deployed aircraft carriers near Iran, The U.S. sent warships into the Caribbean to hedge against Venezuela. Um, We need to be recognizing right now in this moment that despite what we are told, the U.S. military does not make the world a safer place. It makes it a far more dangerous place. The people hit hardest are the people targeted by U.S. uh, meddling and occupation and invasion and bombing and proxy wars. But we are all affected because it's a global pandemic, so an outbreak anywhere affects people everywhere.
0: Very well said. We're speaking with Sarah Lazar, who's web editor at In These Times. Uh, Sarah, in looking at some of these uh, announcements you mentioned at first, the, the Navy accelerating contract awards, etc., there isn't really any argument made that that something is essential. It's it's just purely and openly for the benefit of the companies, apparently. Uh, what is the argument uh, that it's essential? Because if it's if it's about the military protecting people, you know, the actual facts, as you just stated, are that the military endangers us, but but a huge percentage of these weapons being made in these companies in the U.S. are not for the U.S. government, they're for dozens of governments all over the world, aren't they?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the biggest recipient of U.S. arms is Saudi Arabia, um, and U.S. arms are supplying the bombs that are being dropped on Yemen um
0: so are these ceos trying to get it declared essential uh to provide the world's dictators with weapons uh or just the u.s government with weapons
1: well we can just look at where u.s weapons go and we know that the answer is that they go all over the world but i would argue that whatever whether it were just for domestic or international use either way it's a very bad thing for the world um you know, I think that the fact that, that, uh, weapons manufacturing is considered essential reveals a few things about our society. One, it reveals that, uh, weapons manufacturers have a certain degree of political power. Um, they, you know, they have powerful lobby groups. They have friends in Congress. They, just like everyone else, they're trying to, in- you know, uh, protect their profits as much as they can right now. And this shows that they've been at least somewhat effective at doing that. I mean, I think that the, the bailout in the cares package really points to that. Um, but I think that the, what we're seeing right now points to something far more fundamental to our society, which is that in times of crisis, our default posture is one of militarism. Um, You know, I would argue that what we are seeing right now is proving that we need to uh, chip away at the security state, that the security state does not help us. And we need to dramatically expand universal social goods that can help people um, through this tremendous crisis, but also the everyday crises that people were experiencing before the coronavirus outbreak, you know, uh, 40% Forty percent of people can't afford a four hundred dollar emergency. Uh, there are a lot of people living on the edge uh, before this crisis began.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and this is, you know, it's a really big concern because, unfortunately, COVID nineteen is not going to be the only mass crisis we face. If things continue as they are, we are going to experience a climate crisis, and when that happens, are we just going to hand the country over to military brass are we just going to say okay it's time to dramatically expand militarism because that's our blueprint for responding to crises
0: it appears so, <laughs> unless things change. The, the, one of the better ideas, Sarah, that I've seen uh, come out of this crisis is a proposal for a global ceasefire uh, that has even the Saudi royalty increasingly claiming they're going to abide by it, though not for, for any decent reasons, and it's not clear whether they actually will. Uh, but the United States, uh, and, and I saw a tweet from the U.S. National Security Council uh, suggesting that you know several other nations abide Abide by it in places where the u.s is fighting wars but it wasn't at all clear that it was a proposal for the u.s to actually itself abide by it um is there any indication of the u.s government ever uh, agreeing to such a thing
1: well oh that's that, you know that's a hard one to answer i think we have to continue um pushing and organizing for a world where um U.S. military empire is dismantled. Um, You know, (laughs) I don't know that the Trump administration is going to oversee such a process, but we desperately need to reduce the harm that the U.S. does around the world. And I think there are many ways of measuring this harm. I mean, direct overt war is one big way and U.S. wars need to stop. But there's also the, you know, 800 U.S. military bases that are around the world, um, undermining vocal self-determination, bringing pollution, contamination, bringing sexual assault, and in many places, uh, provoking wide-scale resistance and opposition. And so I think I I would love to see this crisis be a time when we rethink U.S. militarism and recognize that not only doesn't make us safe, it's a danger to the entire world. Um, and I think that what we need to be doing right now is pushing for that kind of conversation.
0: Uh, another, uh, and of course those bases in some cases may now be adding the threat of spreading coronavirus to all those other threats you listened, uh, listed uh, the, 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 uh, the the other aspect that you've just written about recently uh, is the the sanctions that the United States doesn't seem to be loosening or abandoning either uh, and you wrote an article at in these times called Joe Biden's cowardly position on Iran sanctions what what is mr. Biden's position
1: so it's very unfortunate because you know the key foreign policy achievement that was lauded by the Obama-Biden administration was the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, um, which sort of gave Iran sanctions relief in exchange for constraints on Iran's civil nuclear enrichment. Um, So, you know, and I would argue the JCPOA was an important act of diplomacy, far preferable to war. Um, It was also an extortion racket premised on the notion that Iran, which had no nuclear weapons program, was a threat that had to be contained, but the United States is not, even though the U.S. has a massive nuclear arsenal. Um,
0: can can, can I, I say... can I interrupt just to say how glad I was to see you write that because everybody t- <laughs> you know obviously it's better than war which which was you know what it was restraining u.s war from but but everybody seems to act as if it was a good thing that Iran deserved it and and it it was a a, a disarmament and peaceful it, when you actually describe it quite quite accurately as a as an unfair mm-hmm. burden put on Iran by a series of of lies about Iran.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. But I will say that um, given the context, I still think that returning to the deal would be a positive step and that um, we have to recognize that the opposition to the deal has come from the most rabid, awful, horrible pro-war forces in U.S. politics. All of the hawkish think tanks and politicians who don't want to admit it but who want war with iran have no qualms about hurting iranian people they all fiercely oppose the iran deal and so in that context i think that there is reason to defend it for sure um, Yes, but of biden course. can't biden can't even do that so biden is declining to call in clear unequivocal terms for a lifting of sanctions even though those sanctions violate the iran nuclear deal achieved by the obama-biden administration um so biden waited quite a long time he waited until april 2nd to break his silence on iran sanctions and he released a statement um and i will just read a few lines from it so he calls for specific steps, including issuing broad licenses to pharmaceutical and medical device companies, creating a dedicated channel for international banks, transportation companies, insurers, and other service firms. Um, And he calls for entities already conducting enhanced due diligence. Uh, They should consider issuing comfort letters to reassure them that they will not be subject to U.S. sanctions. What this amounts to is calling for clearer guidelines and technical fixes, but it, he doesn't actually call for lifting sanctions, even temporarily, even if he just said, I just want to lift them for, you know, 120 days during during the duration of the crisis, that would be better than what he says. Um, the big problem is that the Trump administration actually already claims that there are hum- humanitarian exemptions. Um, you know, this is something Mike Pompeo said as recently as March 20th. But we know that because exemptions are in name only. Um, there's a very complicated matrix of sanctions that exists alongside belligerence and threats from the Trump administration, which has spooked companies from doing business with Iran. A 2019 report from Human Rights Watch actually found that even before the pandemic began, um, companies have been extremely reluctant to do business, um, both companies and banks because they were worried about incurring sanctions and legal action. So, you know, I think it's really useful to contrast, um, what Biden said with what representatives, um, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, and Senator Bernie Sanders, um, and in total 34 members of Congress said in an open letter in which they called on Pompeo and, um, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin to, quote, substantially suspend sanctions on Iran during this global health emergency, and they specifically call for suspending economic sanctions. Yeah. Um, they say, yeah, so, so they're not, it, that's an implicit acknowledgement that it's not enough to claim that there are humanitarian channels. You actually have to give relief to a society that's dealing with a pandemic as well as a recession that's only going to be worsened by this global crisis
0: isn't i mean i'm confused about biden isn't his whole shtick sort of 80 percent i'm not trump and the other 20 percent i used to hang out with obama i mean that's his (laughs) whole brand and and here doesn't he appear to be taking trump's side against obama
1: it is a very incoherent position because of this incoherence i think he should be pushed um I'm seeing some worrying signs that there might be some coalescence around his position that he's taken by other sort of democratic centrists. Um, So on April 3rd, one day after Biden released his statement, um, Senator Bob Menendez and um, representative Elliot Engel released their own statement that was essentially calling for the same thing, you know, technical fixes, clearer guidelines, but falling short of lifting sanctions. Um, Their language was actually more hawkish. Um, So um, Menendez actually, let me just pull up the quote really fast. Okay, so here's a quote from Menendez, who actually reinforced the basic justification for sanctions. So he said, the United States has imposed sanctions on Iran for its nefarious nuclear weapons development, support for terrorism, and human rights abuses, there is no evidence that the regime has stopped its sanctionable behavior. Moreover, simply lifting sanctions that have been imposed for ongoing malign behavior will not provide immediate or meaningful relief for the Iranian people. So those are those are all very pro-sanctions talking yeah. points. That's essentially saying sanctions are justified, and lifting them will not help. But what we need is clearer guidelines. Um, the fact that Biden's position conforms with someone who would say those things is a good indicator that. He's taking a very bad position, and that he really needs to be pushed and forced to uh, give an unqualified opposition to U.S. sanctions on Iran. Um, I will say that there is an amazing anti-war coalition. Um, on you know they are under the banner of end COVID sanctions, and they are working hard to try to push lawmakers to do better on this.
0: Yes, indeed. Absolutely. And and World Beyond War, which I'm the director of, is, is supporting that and, and everyone should be supporting that. I'll give you another indication how bad I think Biden's position is. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who famously said that killing a half million children with sanctions on Iraq was worth it, whatever worth it was, and who for years was asked whether she uh, would now oppose similar sanctions and, on places like Iran and said, oh, no, 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 we must have sanctions on Iran for years I asked her myself and she said no we must have those sanctions she now opposes sanctions on Iran for humanitarian reasons and Biden doesn't this is, this is like you know it, it's it, it's like too evil for Hitler and Biden is still with it uh you know it seems to me
1: yeah you know I'm, I'm a bit worried about um, a rightward creep that's happening, and I think we really need to be on guard against that. I think that we need to be very wary of Biden's failure to call for an end to Iran sanctions, and that we need to look beneath the sort of rhetoric and the fluff and ask, what is he calling for, and does it go far enough? And we have to have a very firm line... Um, which is, we need an unqualified immediate end to sanctions.
0: Should should several other countries be in there too? I mean, it's sort of a global crisis, and the and the sanctions on Venezuela are on condition uh, that uh, that there be a coup, and then the sanctions will be lifted. Maybe there, if somebody ever asks, has anyone asked Biden these questions? I mean, apart from him issuing statements, has anyone asked him face to face about these these questions?
1: Well, you're absolutely right that other sanctions need to be in there. I just focused on Iran because um, that happens to be where one of the worst outbreaks is. But
0: sure. any of these
1: other countries where the U.S. has sanctions could suffer outbreaks. And if they did, would be incredibly hampered in their effort to respond by U.S. sanctions. Um, Sorry, what was the second part of your question?
0: Do you know if anyone has asked Biden directly about uh, about? I mean, apart from the lousy debates that we all suffered through, has anyone asked him (laughs) about foreign policy, uh, you know, directly, face to face, as opposed to, uh, you know, him issuing a a written statement?
1: Um, I am not sure, but I definitely have not seen him hammered with questions in a just world, or, you know, if we had a media ecosystem dedicated to social justice, he would be hammered at every turn on these questions, but we are not seeing that.
0: We we have just about a minute left, Sarah Lazar. Uh, what are you working on next, and where can people go to, uh, to keep up with your work?
1: Uh, thanks so much. Um, I think what I want to do next is highlight some of the really awesome organizing that ordinary people and workers and unemployed people are doing all over the world. I think it's important to couple our critiques of um violent systems with stories of how people are uh strategically coming together to uh oppose them and to fight for a better world um and you can find me at in these times.com that's where i work and that's where you'll find my stuff
0: Terrific. We have been speaking with Sarah Lazar, who is web editor at In These Times, uh, which you can find at inthesetimes.com And you can read her article, As the World Economy Grinds to a Halt, the U.S. War Machine Churns On, and Joe Biden's Cowardly Position on Iran Sanctions and Numerous Other uh, Past Articles and Articles to Come. Sarah Lazar, thank you very, very much for taking the time and coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.